All right, so John chapter 17, this is the high priestly prayer of Christ. This is Jesus praying for his disciples before they leave the upper room to go out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus will be arrested and he will be taken to the cross where he will pay for our sins. In John chapter 17, verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. As I mentioned, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, having celebrated the Passover. This evening has been a pretty eventful evening for Jesus and the disciples. They have come in from Bethany, where they had been visiting with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the, the Bible tells us about the incident in which, Je in which uh, Mary had washed the feet of Jesus with his precious perfume and and Judas had made the point that this could have been sold and the money given to the poor, but we also know from the book of John that Judas didn't care about the poor. He was the treasurer of the group, and he was more interested in how he could line his pockets with the money that they had. He was kind of greedy, but they, they leave Bethany. They come down into Jerusalem. You have the triumphal entry. They're in the upper room. They're observing the Passover. As they came into the upper room... The disciples were arguing, the Bible tells us, if you read all four Gospels, that they were arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus, obviously, is going to be on the throne. He's number one. Who's going to be number two? Who's going to be number three? And as they're having this discussion, Jesus enters the room, and he does something profound. He washes their feet. And this teaches us about humility. This teaches us about serving one another, about loving one another. He's washed the feet of his disciples. He's instituted the Lord's Supper, which we just observed as a church. He has sent Judas away. He said, what you're doing, go, do it, do it quickly. So Judas is on his way to betray Christ. And Jesus has had a discussion starting back in John chapter 4 with his disciples, preparing his disciples for his crucifixion, preparing his disciples for his departure, preparing his disciples to continue the ministry of the gospel in his absence. And this discussion concludes with this prayer in John chapter 17. He has just laid it all out for them. This is what's about to happen. This is what you're going to go through. This is what you're going to face. And then he finishes it up by praying this prayer. The gospel is the intersection of all scripture. All scriptures about the gospel. And Brother Wayman, he verified that and he explained that this morning by saying it's about Christ crucified. That's the gospel, how Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. All scripture points to that, foreshadows it, explains it, depicts it, and makes it to where we understand it, to where we can have our faith in that. And so it follows that scripture from the Old Testament and the New Testament will all intersect in John chapter 17, because Jesus is setting up the gospel here, he is praying for God's glorification in it, and he is praying for his disciples as a result of it. In the opening words of this prayer, in verse 1, Jesus calls upon God for glorification so Jesus can in turn glorify God. And when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son, the word he uses is doxoza. That's a Greek word, doxoza. That's where we get the name of the song doxology from. 
It means to make renown. It means to honor. It means to make the name great. It means to promote. And Jesus is saying, Father, glorify, honor, make renown thy son that I can in turn make you renown. God has been glorified. He has been doxologized through every phase of human history. And we need to recognize that. And when we talk about this doxology, we're not talking about the Shekinah glory of God where he's shiny in the light, the, the form that Jesus took on the Mount of Transfiguration, although that's certainly true. What we're talking about is how God has put his name in front of mankind so that mankind cannot deny his existence, cannot deny his goodness, cannot deny his redemption. God was glorified in creation. In the very beginning, God was glorified. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. If you cannot look at a beautiful starry night and praise God, I, your spirit is in a bad shape. If you cannot stand on top of a mountain and look at the valley below and take in the beauty of that creation and see God as being good, I don't know what I can do for you. Rachel was about four or five years old when we were on top of this Calling it a mountain would be generous, but it was a very tall hill. If you've ever been to El Moro National Monument, that's where we were. We were looking off the side across this valley to where there were other mountains, and Rachel said, God created this beautiful place so that we could come here and enjoy it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And in Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4, the psalmist says, when I consider thy heavens, when I'm looking at the clouds, when I'm looking at the sky, when I'm looking at the starry night, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? The glory of God's creation makes man feel small. You're looking at the Grand Canyon, you're, you're feeling small. And you're standing beside the ocean, you're, you're feeling small. But God was glorified not only in his creation, but also in the creation of man. Because we are the crowning point of God's creation. In Psalm 8, 5, and 6, the psalmist goes on to say, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Man is the crowning point in God's creation. And God was glorified in creating us. He created us in his image. And in creating us in his image, he put his signature on us. Have you ever created something that was so amazing you wanted to sign it? When, when painters paint paintings, they sign it. They put their trademark on the bottom right hand. When I was in college, I took a photography class. And the photography professor told us that he wanted us to sign our pictures after we developed them at the bottom right-hand corner of the frame. He said, if you're really proud of it, you can put the little C and circle it. That means copyright. That means no one can use it unless you give them the right to do that. And I was pretty conceited in my work. I, I signed and copyrighted every single picture I turned in for an assignment. I look back on them now, and they were okay, but I wasn't exactly a Picasso or anything with those pictures. But, you know, when you sign something, you're proud of it. You're proud of it. God made us in his image. In Genesis 1.26, he said, let us make man in our image. He made us in his image, and he was so glorified in our creation that he put his personal signature on us. God was glorified in expelling Lucifer from heaven following Lucifer's rebellion there, and that's why we now know him as Satan. 
God was glorified in forgiving and redeeming man after his rebellion against him in the garden. God was glorified in raising up the nation of Israel to bear his name and his word to the world. God was glorified in allowing Israel to be conquered when they turned away from him and trusted in false gods and worshipped idols. He was glorified in letting them go into the captivity because even though he had chosen them to be his people, they could not hold that over him and manipulate him into allowing them to dishonor his name. And so he allowed them to go into the captivity, and he was glorified in that. And after he had corrected them through the captivity, he was glorified in bringing them back into the land and rebuilding them as a nation. He was glorified in bringing forth his son Jesus, born of a virgin, the indwelling of God, who dwelt among us and gave us the power to become the children of God if we believed. He was glorified in that. It made his name known. He was glorified in punishing Jesus for the sins of mankind and by raising him up from the dead to give us eternal life. He was glorified in Christ. Christ is the turning point of human existence. No one can ignore him. The historians cannot write him off. We cannot deny his impact on mankind. It cannot be done while you're being intellectually or spiritually honest. He was glorified. And God will be glorified when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth. In this verse, Jesus says three things. He says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son may glorify thee. The hour is come. The hour. What hour are we talking about here? Jesus prayed in John 12, 27. He said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this cause came I unto this hour. We're talking about the hour. We're talking about the moment, the moment that God's plan of salvation will be completed. God's entire plan with mankind centers around this moment, the gospel, what Jesus will do on the cross. The moment that Jesus would undo the inherent sin and death brought on by Satan into this world would undo the sin curse that man lives under because of his rebellion in the garden. He would undo the damage done by Adam and Eve in the garden. In this hour, Christ would pay for the sins of the world, bringing forgiveness and redemption to mankind and saving those who believe to the eternal life God originally intended for us back in the garden. Y'all ever wonder what it was like to live in the Garden of Eden? What must Adam and Eve have been able to enjoy there? Hey, check it out. You're going to get to experience that if you know Jesus Christ as his Savior. When he establishes his kingdom on earth, when he restores this world to what he intended on it being, we are going to be right back there in the garden living the life that God intended for us that we messed up when we rebelled against him. The hour is come. Jesus is saying the hour is come. It is time. It, the moment is here. This is what we have been building up to. And in this hour, in this hour, mankind as a human race had a decision to make. Jesus said in Luke 19:42, If thou had known, even thou, at, this, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Jesus had come to Jerusalem to complete God's plan of salvation, to redeem the nation, but the Pharisees only saw a threat to their personal prestige, their power, their way of life, and the things that they wanted. 
So they had him crucified. They rejected him and turned him over to the Romans to be killed. And when they did that, they sealed their doom. They sealed their judgment. They signed the contract for their damnation. In Luke chapter 22, verse 33, Jesus is in the garden. The guard has come to arrest him. And Jesus said to them, When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is not Jesus saying, Why are y'all coming at me at night? You're, you're hypocrites. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, You couldn't touch me in the temple, but you get to have me now. What he's saying is that he still has power over them. They are not in control. To complete the gospel and pay for the sins of mankind, Christ handed himself over to sinful man. And man was told that this is your hour. This is your hour. You have in front of you God in the flesh. And man was given that hour to treat God however man wanted to treat God. Jesus surrendered himself to that. And man treated our Lord as shamefully as he possibly could. They put him on mock trials. They struck him during the trials. They beat him. They put the crown of thorns on his head. They stripped him in front of the masses. They, they scourged him in a scourging that we cannot even imagine the brutality of because we have never seen something so brutal in our lifetimes. There was a law about only striking a man 39 times, I guarantee you. They went beyond that. You know, back in the 90s when I was growing up, there was an incident where a young man from America had gone over to Singapore and had gotten arrested, and his sentence was going to be caning, and we just thought that was barbaric and brutal. They were going to hit him five times. They reduced his sentence to three times. They hit Jesus more than 40 times. Man treated our Lord as shamefully as he could, no compassion, no mercy, no, this looks like it hurts, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. No remorse whatsoever. The compassion and the mercy we desire was denied to Christ. Denied both by man, because man did not withhold any wrath or cruelty against him. And that compassion was not given by God either. For God poured his wrath upon Christ as he hung on the cross. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 say, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He lived our life, but we rejected him and allowed him to take the punishment for our sins. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The punishment that Christ endured on the cross settled the sin debt for all mankind. Man's rebellion against God came to full fruition on Christ when he was beaten and tortured prior to his crucifixion. The cruelty and the evil in man's heart was on full display during the crucifixion of Christ. Yet at the same time that's going on, God is using the suffering and death of Christ to pay off the sin debt and to settle the judgment for the sin that man had committed against him. They're nailing Jesus to the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
while they're nailing him to the cross, he is actually taking the punishment of God for their very act of nailing him to the cross. What greater grace, love, forgiveness, and self-sacrifice is there? God's need for justice was satisfied on the cross. Isaiah 53, 11 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This whole thing settled the conflict between God and man. Now with the hour of salvation complete, it's now your hour. This is your hour. And what are you going to do with that hour? Will you see Christ as a threat to your happiness? Will you see Christ as a threat to your pleasure, a threat to your fun, a, a threat to your prosperity, a threat to your autonomy, your ability to make your own decisions? Is Jesus a buzzkill to you? Is he an inconvenience to you? Or do you see him as salvation, the source of life, and the one who will give you all things and the one to whom you will give your faith and your trust and the one for whom you will live your life. We all have that decision to make. It was brought up in, the, uh, in, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30 this morning, verse 19 that we read during Sunday school. Moses put that decision in front of the people to follow after the Lord and to obey him and to receive his life or to turn away from him and to experience death and his judgment. That's the decision we have before us. What is our decision? We talk about Christianity. We talk about God. We talk about faith. But do we truly accept him as our Lord and Savior? Do we truly trust in the cross for our forgiveness? Do we truly look to him to receive us in the kingdom? Or are we hoping we can get some smart words by St. Peter on the way inside the gate? St. Peter ain't going to be at the gate. And he ain't going to be asking you no questions. It's going to be Jesus at the gate. And he already knows the answers. And that's going to be a pretty quick conversation. The hour is come. What's your decision? Christ prayed that God would glorify him. This glorification, being made renowned, having his name magnified, came through the resurrection. Through the resurrection, we know the name of Christ. If Christ had not been resurrected, his gospel would have never been spread. We would have never known who he was. He would have been another martyr that died sometime through the annals of history. And only those who have a Ph.D. in anthropology or a Ph.D. in history would even know the name. But we all know the name. Everybody knows the name. Christians know the name. The unsaved know the name. The atheist knows the name. Does the atheist ever know the name? The atheist spends his life fighting against him. The Hindus know the name. The Buddhists know the name. The Muslims know the name. The Russians, the Chinese, they know the name. His name has been magnified throughout the earth. And how has it been magnified? Through the resurrection. Through the resurrection, Christ went from being a martyr to being a conquering redeemer because of the resurrection our lord and savior jesus christ became the central figure in human history and because of the resurrection we have confidence in his kingdom the hope of eternal life Amen. phil robertson was talking on youtube one day he said that it was the resurrection that 
led him to faith because of Jesus that died for his sins. That's all well and good. But if Jesus was still in that tomb, Jesus couldn't do much for him today. But because Jesus rose again, Jesus conquered death. Jesus can receive him into heaven. Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God to intercede, to advocate for him, to forgive him, to lead him, to guide him, to direct him. Because of the resurrection, we can believe and we can have hope. Christ prayed that God would glorify him. And Christ prayed that God would be glorified in all of this. Because in this, God has been given the final victory. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Favorite passage of mine. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I could preach that verse every single Sunday. Y'all would get so bored. Y'all be like, Leland, there's really other verses in the Bible. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I told Jessica where I was going with this sermon. She goes, that doesn't surprise me. She says, you love those passages. I didn't even have this in the outline. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The righteousness of God. God cannot live with sin. He cannot live with rebellion. And those things have to be dealt with. He cannot just excuse it and go on. That would be unjust. A judge that lets a criminal who's been convicted and proven guilty walk out of his courtroom without facing consequences is unjust. When a company does things that hurts their employees or hurts the people living in their communities or that does things that hurts their customers, we expect the litigation system, we expect the court system to provide a remedy for that. And when the court system refuses to provide the remedy, there is no justice. That's unrighteous. A righteous God has to be a God of justice. God had a law, and man violated the law. And God would have been righteous and just to condemn man to death for violating that law. But let me tell you how righteous God is. He held the law. He affirmed the law. But then he paid the price for the breaking of that law himself so that he could redeem man, give man the mercy that we love to receive ourselves, to give man the mercy, to redeem man, and to reset things the way it should have been before that law was broken in the first place. That, my friends, is righteousness. And that's a righteousness that you will not find a human equivalent for. That makes our God above all gods. There are no other gods. But the gods that man has imagined, even in their imaginations, our God is still above those gods. Because there's not a single God that man has imagined that has ever done anything greater than that. This morning... If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, let today be the day that you make that decision. I'm going to turn from my sins, and I'm going to trust Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of the rebellion. I'm tired of the battle with God. I surrender. It's a conscientious decision. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, make that decision today. And if you do know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then maybe we need to recalibrate your life 
to where it's built around that. I think so many times we live life, it's hard. There's a saying online, life is hard. It's even harder if you're stupid. I'm not saying anybody's stupid, but life is harder if you don't use the blessings you, that God has given you. You ever try to do work without tools? Have you ever tried to screw in a flathead screw with a butter knife? It's kind of hard. I, I, me too. It's kind of hard to do it that way. If you take the time to get up and go find the toolbox and get a flathead screwdriver, it works better, right? We Christians, in the gospel, in his redemption, in his love for us, he has given us the tools. But oftentimes we get so caught up in the here and now, I need to screw this screw in right now, and I don't really want to take the time to look for the screwdriver, so I've got my butter knife, and it's kind of sort of almost working, and that's how we live life sometimes. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, recenter your life on him, reorient your life around the gospel. That grace that you experience, you'll be led to extend to others. And finding the ability to talk about Jesus and the witness for him won't be such a struggle either. Thousands of preachers this morning and last morning are preaching on vision. They want to motivate the, the, their congregations to grow the church. And this year in 2023, I will be satisfied to see each of us individually grow. Yeah. Our word for 2023 is going to be two things. One, gospel. Y'all are like, what else is new? And two, discipleship. What's yeah. discipleship mean? It means mentoring. It means talking with each other and encouraging each other, leading each other. And not only that, but leading those who are around us. Yes. And this is something that goes on beyond the walls of this church. Amen. You want to truly be blessed this year. Recenter your life on what God has given us. We are going to stand.